As we have been in this passage for a couple of weeks, just review a little bit for you who have not been here. This passage talks in the main about Christ's lordship. And in that context of his lordship over the whole of creation, he commands then his people to go to all the world to make disciples of all the nations. And even in his great lordship, promising his presence to them wherever they go. And so we, we talked about the authority of Christ. He has authority to open up all the ways that his gospel might go. Uh, All the political and economic and social things that need to happen to get his gospel to the world. He is fully able to do that. He has all authority. It's not a matter of Christ's helplessness to get his gospel to the world. And he is able to change his people so that we are willing. He's got all authority to form us into passionate people who spend our lives for Christ. He's not sitting back you know, wrenching his hands with no authority to galvanize his people by his spirit so that they form a, a mighty army. No, he's got all authority. And, and he has authority to then bless us in our efforts, to bless you in the efforts with your neighbors, with your family, people you work with, people you go to school with, to open up hearts where you wouldn't expect it. Because he has all authority. And he says, go. And you know, he has a passion to draw people to himself. All authority. And then another thing we talked about in this authority, let's not refuse this one who has all authority in the earth. If there is one person we better be giving our lives to, it's this one that has absolute authority. Who else are we going to bend the knee to? Who who else are we going to follow but the one who has all authority? heaven and earth. We saw then last week how he addresses this to the whole church so that uh, these are plurals, you know, in Alabama, y'all here. Um, so we, we then form a, a culture of outreach. We must form a culture of outreach. And therefore, we have to have the heart of Christ who says there are other sheep and I must bring them as well. And he gave those wonderful parables in Luke 15, searching for the lost coin, searching for the lost sheep. The father who runs down the road joyfully embraces the prodigal and the joy in heaven that erupts at the salvation of one. And that's contrasted with the Pharisees who didn't care for the lost. That's a searching question. Are we a culture of outreach? Are we just a bunch of self-righteous Pharisees? That's a searching question. But I want to go back to if, if you even find yourself to be an uncaring Pharisee. He has all authority to change your life and transform you and do whatever is necessary to make you a passionate follower of Christ and to give you a deep compassion for your neighbor. So, the heart of Christ, we saw the example of Christ. He himself was mixing it up with the, some bad people, tax gatherers and sinners. We don't even know who all they were, but sure bothered the Pharisees to see Jesus mixing it up with them. No doubt this is the means of many of their coming to know Christ. 
being saved. And the Pharisees weren't building bridges with them. They weren't trying to establish relationships with sinners. They're trying to stay as far away as they could. So Christ in his heart, this searching for the lost sheep or coin is manifested in the way he would sit down with sinners at, at dinner. So it's not a, necessarily our going knocking on doors. We've never talked about that, have we? It's, it's relating to people in your context. It's opening up your home. It's serving people next door. Um, and then we talked about the strength of Christ. And you recall we talked about the demoniac. Who would you like to be an uh, ambassador for you? Would it be this nice religious man who ties every week and who uh, uh, prays regularly and always attends? He knows the word backwards and forwards. Or would you take this guy that's naked in the tombs and he's howling and beating up people and he cuts himself with rocks? Which one would be a good ambassador? And we know that Jesus picks the demoniac and he transforms him and he goes and proclaims the gospel. So this one who has all authority calls us to be have a culture of outreach so that we have the heart of Christ and we're following the example of Christ. But in our utter weakness, we're dependent upon the strength of Christ because we're chicken. We're selfish by nature. We're unfit, just like the demoniac, no less unfit. But what can Christ do in a person's life? Well, that's a little bit of our background as we come now, the final time, to this passage. Now, the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Let us pray. O Lord, grant us faith to believe you, to trust you, truly, Lord, to be men and women of faith, joyful faith to give ourselves up to our precious Lord Jesus. We ask this in his name. Amen. I'm going to just point out several aspects of this title, Believing the Lord in Outreach. What are some things that we must believe in order to be a church that reaches our community and reaches the world. The first is pretty simple, and it's based on the great declaration of Christ's lordship in this passage. And it's, it may even seem simplistic and, oh yeah, okay, I know that. But it's this, believe in Christ as your Lord. Really believe that Christ is your Lord and take him as your Lord. In this passage, it says that we are to make disciples of the nations. Now, I used to be a part of a Christian organization that divided these issues. In fact, we prided ourselves in the fact that we didn't just bring people to Christ. We made disciples. We were disciple makers. 
And we distinguish between those two things. There are Christians and then there are disciples. And we interpreted this passage as saying, go and convert people, make them Christians, and then make them disciples. And since the main verb here, as any Greek scholar knows, or even somebody that's not a scholar like me, um, that the main verb is make disciples. So the other verbs depend on it. Going, make disciple, baptizing, and teaching. But the problem with that is that in the New Testament, a disciple is a Christian. And it's in Antioch that the disciples were first called Christians. Christians, perhaps even a name of, of ridicule, the Christ followers. So to make disciples is to make Christians, to make converts. But that points out something that's a problem with us is we tend to have this big batch of general Christians and then we have disciples. But the scriptures say you're a disciple or you're lost. Okay, you're a disciple or lost. There's not a nice gray section for all these people who expecting to go to heaven, but don't lay claim to my life. Don't tell me what to do in every part of my life, Lord Jesus. But the problem, of course, with that is, do you believe in his goodness as Lord? Do you believe in his wisdom as Lord? To believe in him as Lord is to entrust your life to his care and his commands. It's to entrust yourself like you would an excellent doctor and say, whatever prescriptions you give me, I'll do them exactly as you say. And the indication in John 15 is this is the way you... Give yourself or abide in his love. His care is expressed in all of his commands. They're the ways of blessedness from Christ, including this. In fact, in many ways, this is one of the consummate blessings. That is, we worship and honor him. We spill that love out. And as John said, we tell you these things so that our joy may be full. So to believe in Christ as your Lord is to put your life in his hands and say, I entrust you that even in this matter of the gospel that rattles my cage and unhinges me sometimes when I think about it, that everlasting joy and enlarged joy will be mine as I put myself in your hands. Do you believe in Christ as your Lord? Or are you forming a life, deciding what I'm going to do, what I'm not going to do, which commands I'll do, which commands I won't do, what kind of lifestyle I'll have, what kind of lifestyle I won't have. Just like Eve was basically deciding what kind of lifestyle she was going to have. So, John 15, by this is my father glorified that you bear much fruit. And so prove to be my disciples. This is how my father is glorified. And there's some disagreement as to what fruit here means. Some would say it's specifically the fruit of other people coming to know Christ. I tend to take it as the fruit of love, which is the whole point of this passage, it seems. But that would certainly include that, wouldn't it? 
the fruit of, of bearing the love of Christ and showing the love of Christ in every area to one another, to our own families and to a dark world. That is the way the Father is glorified. That is the way you and I show we really are his disciples. And see, we're the disciples of the one that and you might turn in your bulletin to the beginning quote from John Calvin and his commentary on John four. You remember in that passage there, they've gone to get something to eat. He's been speaking to the Samaritan woman and they come back and they say, uh, Jesus says, they say, Rabbi, eat. And he says, well, I have food to eat that you don't know about. And they said, well, has somebody brought him something to eat? What's going on here? And Jesus says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Specifically, it was to present himself to this woman. That's my food. Notice what Calvin says. The nature of Christ's office is well known to advance the kingdom of God, to restore lost souls to life, to spread the light of the gospel and in short, to bring salvation to the world. The importance of these things made him forget meat and drink when he was tired and hungry. From this, we receive no common comfort. It tells us that Christ was so anxious for men's salvation that the height of pleasure for him was to attend to it. For we cannot doubt that he has the same attitude towards us today. Isn't that glorious? Christ, it's his. He says, I, it, it is my food to do the will of the Father. It is everything. It is my pleasure to make myself known. If we're going to be his disciples, if we're going to call him Lord by his grace, we need to taste of that desire and have it. This that our food, our food is to do the will of him who sent us. And of course, that applies to every part of your life. But the context of that and sometimes we extract that say, you know, we've got to obey God in all areas. That's true. But specifically, the food is to do the will of being used to bring others to Jesus Christ. We're not saying that you've got to go around witness. We've said this over and over. We're talking about in the context of friendships. And it, you may uh, be a friend to a neighbor over a two-year period, and, and there are two or three conversations, significant ones that happen during that course that, uh, in which you present the gospel. We're not talking about uh, anything less than a full-bodied life lived before the world. But nonetheless, to bear in mind, this is my food. Lord Jesus, make it my food. Lord Jesus, make me your follower, your learner, your disciple, so that I am like you by your Holy Spirit. Wouldn't that be exciting for us to pray that? Lord, make it my food. Make me your disciple so that I will glorify the Father. So that we as a church will. Isn't it interesting in 1 Peter 3.15, the great verse about being ready to give a reason for the hope that is in you. And somebody asks, somebody wonders what's going on in your life and the great hope that you have, the way you can deal with problems in your life, perhaps the way you were being upheld in a tragedy. And they ask you to give a reason. He says, in your hearts, set apart 
Christ as Lord. We read that in our responsive reading. In fact, here's another one of those main verbs. The main verb is not being prepared to give an answer or to give a reason. It's this. Here's the main part of this whole thing. Regard Christ as Lord in your hearts. Then and only then will be truly prepared to give a reason for the hope that we have because we have bowed the knee to this Lord Jesus. So I would ask at the front end, though, of anyone here who may not know Christ, you, you may be kind of standing on the outside thinking, this whole thing is kind of weird because I, I don't really know if I trust Jesus Christ. Our message is that this Lord actually died in the place of sinners 2,000 years ago. That he actually took the place and bore the punishment of God for sin. And that each of us has sinned so drastically and terribly before God, we deserve his punishment. And the good news is you can be dead honest about all the dark stuff that's in your heart and your life. All the stuff that you think, all the jealousies, the anger, the murder that's even in your heart of wanting revenge against people and wanting to be the most important person in the world and knowing that you really don't care for people so much of the time like you need. All of those things that swirl. And in, in addition to that, all the pain that we've experienced from other people and how they've treated us in terrible ways. The Lord Jesus offers himself to say, I will die. I died and I offer myself so that all of your sins would be forgiven and that your whole life can be gradually restored and healed, made whole. It's what the biblical word shalom or peace means. So maybe for some of you, it begins right there. That you this morning become a disciple of Jesus Christ. It's not by saying, yeah, I'm it's on your face. It's helpless. It's crying out and saying, Lord Jesus, have mercy on me. I've sinned greatly against you in my ignoring you and despising your ways. I've sinned greatly against so many people. Oh, Lord, forgive me of my sin and restore me and make me a willing disciple of you. So, do you believe in Christ as your Lord? Do you believe in the effect that a community of love can have on a watching world? Do you believe in the great effect that this community of love could have on a watching world? Jesus prayed, I don't ask for these only, but I ask for those who will believe in me through their word. It's you and me, okay? So he's praying for us. That they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. We can't bear witness alone. We bear witness in concert. And our love and care of one another is part of our gospel. It's a part of the good news. That there is a place where very different people and very hard to get along with people, which everybody is, love each other. It's a proclamation 
of a community that is bearing with one another and forgiving one another and being open with one another and confessing sin to one another and confronting one another at times and being reconciled to one another. A community of love that is becoming one. We form a temple of glory that shines forth an inviting community by God's grace, one of meaning and purity, one of safety and sanity. And even then, we're so far from perfect, so far from perfect. And we're always growing and we stumble in so many ways, as James says. But together in concert, we actually become a magnet for the gospel. We actually become a fragrance of love. And as Jesus says, it's the fragrance of the love that exists between the Father and the Son that wafts out to the world. Amazing. That is glory. Glory. Or as he says in John 13, this new commandment I give you, that you love one another just as I've loved you. You are also to love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. These are promises. Sometimes these are used to just say, well, we better do this or the world will reject Jesus. But sometimes we don't go to the positive side and say, brothers and sisters, if we constantly give ourselves to one another and and, and try to continue to confess our sins and grow together more and more in love, as we're trying to do, for instance, with small groups and 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 other types of fellowship to give opportunity for our growth in this way. Jesus says that they will know that you're my disciples. They will glorify God because of our love for one another. Iron, I love to see a molten metal. It scares you half to death. And, you know, seeing these guys that really know certain metals and they can pass their hands through it. But just that wonder that this is really metal, but it's so hot it glows, the fire from within it. And an old uh, theologian was talking about that as they had seen the same thing. And he said, this is like the life of God in the church, bringing a glow and a glory. It's not the iron itself. It's the heat in it. You see, it's the, it's the life of Jesus Christ that shows to other people. Can we believe God for this? And even as you seek reconciliation or growing in love, always realize this is important because of the gospel. It's important that I meet somebody that perhaps I don't know because may create a relationship and pour an encouragement in this person's life. And this will be part of that glow that shows that we belong to Jesus. It's hopefully the kind of thing that when we have more and more visitors, I hope one day there'll be hundreds of visitors every Sunday in this place, that they just sense as they see our relationship to one another, as they get involved in more and more of the life of the church and see our sacrifice for one another. And so many of you just amaze me in your wonderful love for one another. It's just a glory to God that this will be used to draw them to Christ. So do we believe in the Lordship of Christ? Do we believe in the great community of the church? Do we believe in the power of His Word to save people? Do we believe in the power of His Word? Are you, have you had that experience when you'll 
share Christ with someone and maybe you've had a friendship for a while and you finally this opens up and you share Christ and and at the end you say, would you think you would like to believe in Christ? And they say, yeah, I think I do. And you almost think, you do? You know, because <laughs> you're just so shocked, you know, so surprised that you mean God's word has changed your life? You mean the cross has won your heart? Almost as though we're thinking, how could the love of Christ change your heart? How could God giving his son to die for sinners affect your life and make you have hope? And maybe see in him a treasure that is above any treasure you could have in your life. What's that all about? We have to confess that maybe we've lost a vision for the glory of this message. Listen to what Spurgeon says. Oh, the power, the melting, conquering, transforming power of that dear cross of Christ. My brethren, we have but to abide by the preaching of it. We have but constantly to tell abroad the matchless story. And we may expect to see the most remarkable spiritual results. We need to spare of no man now that Jesus has died for sinners. See the hope that he speaks with? With such a hammer as the doctrine of the cross, the most flinty heart will be broken. And with such a fire as the sweet love of Christ, the most mighty iceberg will be melted. We need never despair for the heathenish or superstitious races of men. If we can but find occasion to bring the doctrine of Christ crucified into contact with their natures, it will yet change them and Christ Will be their king. Maybe he drank a little bit of that conviction of Paul. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. C. John Miller, a man noted for his evangelistic zeal, I cannot escape a disturbing conclusion that we've lost the deep conviction that the gospel, the word of God, is alive and active, a message so powerful and so thoroughly irresistible when applied by the Holy Spirit that it could not help but bear fruit in the salvation of souls. Do you and I believe that? Do we believe that... In the context of friendship and love and servanthood and hospitality, both corporately and individually, as we open up the gospel of Jesus Christ, who knows what will happen? Because it's Christ. It's the Christ that's won our hearts. And so hopefully we're thinking, oh, this could win anybody's heart. This could win anybody's heart. I love what Paul writes in Romans 15. I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised, that is, the Jews, to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs. And notice, and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy, as it is written, therefore, I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. God is glorified when people experience his mercy. 
He is glorified. And you can believe that He wants them to taste His mercy. He wants them to see the glory of Christ. He so loved the world that He gave His Son so that whoever believes, the idea is He gave His Son so that He could freely offer Him to everybody. And it's His love that does so. Believe in the power of His Word. Believe in the power of His Word. And launches us into this thought. Believe in the desire of God to glorify His name in the earth. That passage that we just read in Romans 15, it's kind of a bridge passage for these two points. That he might, the, the Gentiles might glorify God for His mercy. This is what God wants to increase more and more. That more and more Gentiles, more and more people in the earth would glorify God for His mercy. That more and more people would see that mercy lived out in the people of God and that way would be softened and be drawn to the aroma of this mercy that is transforming our very fellowship and our families. And then they'll hear this message of mercy. The desire of God to glorify His name. In Numbers 14, when God backs off from judging Israel because Moses prayed for them, he says, I love this. He says, I've pardoned according to your word, but truly as I live and as all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord. I love that. Let me tell you, okay, Moses, but let me tell you something. My glory is going to spread throughout the whole earth. Then you couple that with Romans 15 that says this was all done, the, the salvation to the Jews that breaks out to the Gentiles so that they might glorify God for His mercy. Do you think God wants people to glorify Him for His mercy in India, Afghanistan? Do you think? I think so. I think He wants to glorify His name. In Isaiah 40, when it talks about the outbreak of the gospel, comfort, comfort my people. And it talks about every valley shall be lifted up. Every mountain hill shall be made low. And what does it say? The glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. There's an encouragement that when you're thinking of just your neighbor to be encouraged to say, The Lord wants to glorify Himself by showing mercy to sinners. The Lord wants to glorify Himself by showing mercy to my dad or my mom or my brother or my sister or my child. He wants to glorify Himself. Do you believe in that passion of God? Isn't it interesting when Christ cleansed the temple that it was the area of the Gentiles? And what he said, he cleansed it at the first of his ministry and at the end of his ministry. And he said that this will be my 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 uh, the Lord's house will be a house of prayer for the Gentiles. Like this was a missionary act on Jesus part. The cleansing of the temple was his statement that, oh, no, oh, no. The Gentiles are going to come and they're going to worship me in this place. This ultimately means the church. My temple will be a place where the Gentiles will come. So his anger 
is, in a sense, on behalf of all the nations of the world. You see this violent outburst, you think, what is this about? It's about the fact that he's going to get his name made known to the whole earth. So do you think that when billions of people and other religions, you may be sitting there thinking, well, but these are all just different ways to God. But you see, the God who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the God who gave his Son to die, The God who offers full forgiveness for people based on the punishment of his own son. This love that is unheard of and unprecedented and not duplicated in any way by any religion. This God of love. Do you think the fact that people are lost in darkness, have never tasted that love, never tasted that forgiveness, never rejoiced in him? In that way, that the Lord just shrugs his shoulders. says, eh, doesn't matter if I'm not glorified in this nation or that nation. I don't care. He doesn't shrug his shoulders. This is glorious. I really had not noticed this connection until this week. In Isaiah 42, it's talking about the Messiah and his pouring his spirit out on the Messiah. And it talks about all that he's going to do. And he says, I will give you as a covenant for the people, speaking to Messiah, a light for the nations to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. I'm with you. I'm with you. Then this verse, I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. This talk about opening the eyes that are blind and bringing out the prisoners from the dungeon, those who sit in darkness, he's saying, I will release them from my idolatry. I will not give my glory to an idol. I will receive it to myself. My praise will not go to those idols. Oh, I'm excited about that. He is going to glorify his name in the earth. He must. He has a passion for it. Finally, do you see yourself as sent? Jesus said, peace be with you. Just as the Father has sent me, even so, I'm sending you. John Stott writes, this sense of having been sent was fundamental in Jesus' awareness. And it's true. He just kept saying, the one who sent me. He who sent me, he who sent me. That's a huge theme in John. So it's very significant that as he defines himself as the sent one, then at the end, after all this context of sent, he says, just as the father sent me, I'm sending you. So Stott says it gave significance and urgency and compulsion to everything he did because he was sent. If God was to Jesus, he who sent me, then Jesus must be to us, he who sent us. He who sent us. You are the sent ones. You've been sent just as Jesus. What an honor that he turns around and you think you want to fall before him and say, Lord, no, you're the sent one. You're worthy to be sent. I can't be sent. He says, no, I'm sending you. 
So the church is the community of Jesus, as Stott says, who've been chosen out of the world and then sent back into the world in order to qualify for the name church. We must be a community deeply and constantly aware of our sentness and actively loyal to this part of our Christian identity. So, my uh, son was, uh, you know, recently 18 years old and had to sign up selective service. And you and I need to see ourselves that we're all abandoning civilian life in the spiritual sense. We're just abandoning it. And we're not even on reserve, okay? (laughs) We're all on active duty every day, always, in this glorious warfare. And that's why Paul can say something like Colossians 3.17, Whatever you do, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't that glorious? So that you're mowing the lawn, lawn isn't just mowing the lawn anymore. Okay? It has significance. I'm doing this in the name of the Lord Jesus. You kiss your wife. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I do this in the name of the Lord Jesus. I eat breakfast. I do this in the name of the Lord. Whatever you do, you're aware. I'm a sent one. Everything I do has something to do with the significance of becoming more like Christ more and more honoring Him, growing closer and closer to Him, that I might be more and more an instrument of love and usefulness in this world. Robert Murray McShane, who died in his 20s, said, A holy man is a fearful thing in the hand of God. Everything you do has significance to prepare you to be used by God to bring the character of and the message of Jesus Christ. I love what John C. John Miller says after talking about how the harvest is plentiful, Jesus in Luke 10. And then, you know, when they had the draft of fish and, you know, they fished all night, hadn't caught anything. And they had something that was they had so many fish, their nets were breaking. And then he said, from now on. And I think he says this to the whole church. From now on, you're going to be fishing for men. And it's against the backdrop, not of they caught a fish or two, breaking the nets. And so as the sent ones, see John Miller says, by faith we expect rich harvest fields and breaking nets. How about us believing that? We're going to expect rich harvest fields and breaking nets. Let us pray. Oh, Lord, we thank you that you have set before us such an opportunity and such promises, such joy that we, like John, could give away our lives, could bury our lives, as Jesus said, like seed, and that seed bear forth. So much fruit. And part of that fruit will be transformed lives. lives, And part of that fruit will be our own joy, our own personal transformation, our own liberty from self, the implosion of all 
of our self-righteousness and self-dependence and self-serving and self-protection. Oh Lord, what awaits us if we but give ourselves up to You to the simple command to make Your love known in word and deed. Give us grace to pray for unbelievers around us. Give us grace to care for them and love them. And give us grace at the right time in the right way, Lord, to share our testimony, to share some part of Jesus Christ, to invite them to a meeting, to be used of You, Lord. Oh, bless us, for You sent us, Lord. You sent us. All authority is Yours. You say that You are with us. You will bless all of our efforts. We trust you in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.